and sort of also objectively folks want to go in green but there are more and more projects for the benefit again of the end consumer which are going shorter duration and really the new product structure of the shorter duration in my mind is to rationalize the risk allocation between the lender of taker in the old world the lender was taking less of a risk and really enjoyed lending to a project which had 20 year cost flows and good credit hello and welcome to the solar maverick podcast where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience i'm your host benoit thangent so let's get into it Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Sean Sinha. He works for Constellation Energy. All opinions expressed by Sean is solely his opinion and does not reflect the opinions of Constellation Energy. Sean is a principal in the investment side for Constellation Technology Ventures, and he's responsible for originating and structuring new investments, as well as supporting the growth of the Constellation Technology Ventures portfolio. Prior to that, Sean led the structuring and investment team within Constellation Energy's distributed energy business. He led new product development, financial structuring, and asset acquisition efforts for competitive bidding and internal underwriting, helping to deploy over $1 billion of capital on distributed energy development. Opportunities span multiple asset classes, including solar PV, storage, fuel cell, and biomass. In addition, Sean has led extensive experience in project financing and was was involved in non-recourse debt offerings on utility scale renewables and gas generation totaling over 1.5 billion. Constellation is an energy company headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland. It's a subsidiary of Exelon. The company provides electric power, natural gas, and energy management services. It has approximately 2 million customers across the continental U.S. Uh, Sean discusses a lot of interesting topics on the podcast. Some of the topics are the electrification of the transportation fleet the future solar and storage, how software plays a key role in energy storage, and the future of the electricity grid. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast, and I appreciate you listening. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Solar Energy Systems, SCS, for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. They are a solar energy photovoltaic design bill firm headquartered in Brooklyn, New York, and serving the Northeast USA. And you'll hear more about them during the podcast. Thank you again to SCS for sponsoring. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have Sean on the podcast. He's both a friend and colleague that we've known for several years. And actually, Abhinash Tiwari, who used to work at Constellation and now at Blue Flame, actually introduced us a while ago. And Abhinash was one of our first interviews on the podcast. But what I really enjoy is whenever Sean and I see each other at conferences, we have amazing and interesting conversations about energy. And he always brings a unique perspective. And I always learn a lot when I speak to him. And it's funny because I saw you last year when I was driving from Virginia to Baltimore. We were just meeting for coffee, but then that ended up maybe being an hour and a half, two hour meeting. And then you were in New York. We met up for lunch. We had an amazing conversation. So I'm excited for our Solar Mavericks, our audience, to uh, hear about Sean's experience and his perspective. Thank you, Sean, for being on the podcast. Absolutely, Bina. I I appreciate you having me on this program and I'm looking forward to it. Yes. So in the beginning, I talked about your bio. It'd be great to learn more if you could go into more detail about your experience in energy. 
what got you interested as well. And um, it's interesting to me because you have both expertise in project finance, where you've done originated structure and executed investments for constellation of $2 billion across solar, wind, storage, fuel cells, and biomass. And your new role is you're looking into investing into early stage companies. I feel like you bring a very unique experience based on what you've done in the past. And it would be great to get your perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for laying that out. So as you mentioned, I've been with Constellation Energy for the last eight years based out of Baltimore and started off primarily with a project finance in the capital markets function here. Focused on two principal things at that point in time, developing financing strategies on an on-balance sheet fleet of renewables and non-renewables assets as well as M&A opportunities. And then you know managing various aspects of project finance and tax equity transactions. So Overall, you know, very interesting time during which I participated in, you know, multiple financing transactions and strategic initiatives across a variety of uh, different asset classes, but primarily focused on utility scale, wind, solar, and then some combined cycles as well. Since then, in 2015, I joined the firm's renewable and distributed energy business. Also, when we first started to get to know each other, you know, the business, as you know, invested in a variety of platforms, you know, including CNI Solar Energy efficiency and multi-technology assets uh, really with the customer-centric focus. And part of the strategic effort and opportunity there was to always invest in assets and structured products that, you know, complemented constellations to retail and wholesale electric load serving business. So I spent about four years at Function managing a team of, you know, I'd say investment professionals and focused on financial and business structuring, designing and implementing tax to optimize and cost efficient capital structures for investments in that space, strategic initiatives, M&A and portfolio optimization. And lastly, also looked at new uh, product development, both from a behind-the-meter generation asset perspective, with investments in, uh, in fuel cells, etc., as well as commodity link, product tied to our power and gas marketing business. In all, it was a great experience, you know, having worked in a development shop across a variety of different technologies and assets and sort of helped us grow from where we started to a large amount of megawatts under management. And most recently, as you mentioned, I'm currently a principal within our venture investor fund, which is called Constellation Technology Ventures. And the fund, uh, like any traditional VC, is looking to generate venture scale financial returns. But we also have a very strategic mandate to ensure that, you know, early stage companies that we invest in, either the product or the business model, has uh, strong commercializable synergies within any of our commercial businesses. And my role in the fund is an investment principle and in a more traditional aspect of sourcing, originating new investment opportunities and also playing a part in execution and sort of a governance role as in when it lends that opportunity to do so. That's what I do now. And uh, overall, looking back at the eight years here at Constellation, it's been a great experience having gone through very distinct and, and unique verticals in the energy landscape. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And it's you're focused at Constellation Technology Ventures in the energy mobility and sustainability sectors for early stage companies. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. You know, we are an energy company and our mandate requires us to 
generate financial returns, but also find those strategic values. And increasingly, a lot of value for an energy company lies in renewables, distributed energy, how energy is going to be served and sold, demand-side management, DERs, and then increasingly, you know, sustainability and mobility just outside of the large infrastructure space, you know, not just looking at EVs, but sort of, for example, facilitation of more wide-scale adoption of EVs and fleets and what it takes to get there. So some of those have been focus areas as well. I would say tangential to the core energy sector that I've been working with, but extremely relevant and correlated as we go ahead in the future. Yeah, and that's really interesting to me because like, it's really a complement to the existing Constellation business, both Constellation Energy Ventures, but also you know when you're in the role where you're structuring distributed energy transactions for investments. So that's really interesting. And it's interesting because you were talking about electrification and about electric cars. Can you talk about electrification of vehicles and how that will impact the energy markets? It's interesting. I interviewed Andy Klump, who's the CEO of Clean Energy Associates, and he said that China has a mandate of 2030 that all vehicles have to be electric. What do you think about that like in the US? And do you think we're going to see like an increasing trend for electric vehicles? This kind of connects to the whole battery storage, energy storage. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, transport is a big, big sector and also sort of a problem to be solved when it comes to basically greenhouse gas emission in the U.S. You know, it accounts to almost a third of the GHGs coming out and a third of the GHGs are coming out of that sector. And historically, electrification and the transport focus seen on the LDV segment, and that's been increasingly going towards, you know, other sort of segments as well within the transport sector. You know, drivers of this would include continuous decline in cost of lithium-ion policy and then, you know, increase in public infrastructure for charging and sort of uh, having the ability for greater mobility with less operational constraints. That's what you want to put in front of the consumer. And uh, pretty apparent looking out the, the broader market that there's been, you know, strong momentum across all of those sort of like. So there's been, you know, tremendous growth over the last 10 years in lithium ion and technologies and the costs associated with it, vehicles as well, you know, especially when you consider range. And then the infrastructure behind that, charging depots. And that's really helped, I would say, the end consumer, the mass market electric vehicle sector to a point that where folks who are going to buy a new car are increasingly going to think the next new car is going to be electric. And that's increasingly going to be a paradigm that you're going to enter into, really built on the back of very, very solid work over the last 10 years. Beyond that, I think it's a very, very interesting sort of market and opportunity out there. You have freight, medium and heavy duty, you have buses, you have regional airports, and you have seaports and airports as well, and I included airports. And you're going to a segment which requires uh, larger loads, you know, offsetting larger load, but also sort of from a perspective of range and how they've traditionally operated. You know, it's moving. It needs a broader push beyond what we achieved in the mass market sector. For example, in the trucking industry, you basically need much more efficient batteries to get to the same point of efficiency to replace a semi today with a totally electric semi. And that's sort of the next phase of how this is going to evolve. But all of
of those verticals in itself are each, you know, problems, I would say, or challenges in front of the market to be solved. Policy and regulation, you know, increase availability and capacity. And then, of course, collaboration between various agencies like EFRI and DOE and sort of the national labs providing thought leaderships has definitely sort of helped. And I would say a couple of last things, you know, you're seeing an increasing amount of fleets that are trying to electrify as well. You're looking at the likes of Amazons and DHLs and UPS and FedExes. You know, there's an entire problem set there to be solved as well when you think about how these guys just not go from placing their standard internal combustion vehicles, electric vehicles, but consideration about depots, charging stations, route optimization. And what does that all mean? Add a cost competitiveness that, you know, you're close to where you're going to be on sort of your traditional footprint today. Because, you know, the cost then ultimately is a pass-through to the end consumer and folks are definitely sensitive about going down that path. So there's an intricate balance in the interim and managing that. What I'm getting to is there's basically a couple of new verticals which are coming out in helping sort of broader fleet enablement as well. Not just looking at lithium-ion batteries and the vehicle and the charger itself, but the broad infrastructure and the planning tools uh, to enable that. Yeah, that is really interesting. There's so many great points that you mentioned. And I think the key thing is that we're going to see the same decreases, as you mentioned, in lithium-ion batteries that we've seen in solar panels. Like, for example, the cost of solar has decreased like 500% in the past five years. I think you're going to see a huge decrease in two to three to four years in lithium-ion the capacity of these batteries as well, we're seeing increasing dramatically. And that's a huge key when you talk about transportation, specifically trucking. It's so interesting because actually a cell side analyst reached out to me about Rivian. And I don't know if you know Rivian, they're basically an electric vehicle manufacturer. They're trying to make a semi-truck that has a battery. But right now, at least from my perspective, me talking to this analyst, the technology is not really there to make it as cost competitive of the current costs related to using gas and the amount of charge and the capacity of the battery. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. And then, you know, we're seeing as well with like a lot of the smaller sort of trucks or buses, you're seeing they're now electric. You know, Amazon Prime has like these, or Amazon has these small sort of vans that are electric vehicles. That's really interesting that you mentioned it. Sort of key interesting themes like, you know, electrification at airports provides a sort of a big opportunity, especially ground service equipment, you sure, know, that's true. ground service equipment are increasingly sort of diesel powered, but, you know, they run 24 by 7, 365 days a year. So, you know, if there's another problem set to be solved, like can you sort of take some of those low hanging fruits and electrify them quickly? Because you're going to solve these problems in stages and then in complexity as well. Long haul trucking, given the cost barrier and the technology barriers likely to take more time than some of the shorter haul stuff. And then, you know, fixed route optimization could be done more easily than sort of longer route optimization as well. So there's going to be opportunities to sort of, you know, chip away this problem, if you will, over the near term to medium term to the to the longer term to, to sort of really broadly drive more electrification. The other thing which is sort of interesting, and of course you've heard about sort of Nikola Motor coming out with the stack early this June, but sort of the other end of the spectrum of lithium-ion is hydrogen. And the idea of basically co-locating sort of electrolysis infrastructure with renewables, produce green hydrogen, and then have, you know, hydrogen-enabled fuel cells and trucks to do there, you know, there's clearly some investor appetite to go down that 
that. And in between those two sort of spectrums is uh, drop-in hydrocarbons, which again drop in sort of you know low-carbon hydrocarbons. So basically, uh, replacing your existing hydrocarbons with sort of lower uh, carbon intensity fuels uh, uses some of the similar construct as hydrogen, or sort of electrolysis on the front end, co-location with renewables to ensure that there is the supply chain of that production is still green. But that is an interim solution between full-scale hydrogen or full-scale lithium ion. So all of those sort of emerging models are simultaneously competing or, and also trying to develop themselves and might have a place, you know, to coexist in sort of the global environment. Yeah, definitely. Those are great points. And, you know, I know we're talking about energy storage when it relates to vehicles. What about combining solar plus storage? You know, everyone obviously has been talking about that for years. What trends do you see that that's happening within either the solar space or solar plus storage? The solar space, and you are as good as anyone in the market to know what's happening, it's really on a ramp up. Over the last 10 years, there's been continued activity and sort of growth in the market across the board. In solar, you've had a few years, you know, pre-ITC renewal in 2016, there was some sort of hesitancy to understand what's going to happen in the market when the tariffs came in in 2017. But even some of those, I would say, quote-unquote, regulatory or policy-related challenges didn't really result in any sort of scale or slowdown and the momentum's been there. So solar on its own is on a trajectory to grow and to quickly, you know, rapidly being able to deploy across in front of the meter or behind the meter markets. Solar plus storage is definitely very, very interesting or, or sort of pairing renewables with storage is a value proposition. And my personal perspective is it's going to stick in the market. It plays well in some markets because of the fundamentals of it versus in some other market, it has to have broader policy push. But overall, as a product, it makes sense given that the idea is to get to firmer shape and capacity from an intermittent generation product. You know, there's an abundance of solar which is going to get deployed year on year. And then, you know, increasingly, there'll be a requirement to make it firmer. There'll be a requirement to make sure that the intermittency can be reduced and sort of, you know, basically make it a bit more dispatchable at the end of the day and make it look like a more traditional power asset. And it's on the trajectory there to go there. In terms of the market, it's very interesting. Like California, for example, you're aware of the duck curve and sort of the pressure on pricing when solar peaks most. And while in the evenings, the prices go up while solar production goes down. Now, that's a great use case for storage. You know, you're producing a ton of solar during the middle of the day, but the value of sort of liquidating that is low. So might as well store it and sort of shift it to a latter part of the day. And sort of the California market, I don't know if this was by design. Definitely a duck curve might not have been by design, but given the amount of solar that came in there, it has allowed for a rather sort of economic play for storage to solve that issue and really sort of smoothen the variance in the spread over time. And then that sort of enabled with a very rich policy like SGEV on the behind the meter side really sort of is a good enabler and has uh, shown to drive continued momentum in that market. Island markets do really well as well. You know, Hawaii, Rico, the Caribbean, increasingly as sort of the cost and the LCOE goes down, you know, it makes more and more sense, basically best storage in those markets with every other solar asset or every solar asset that's being built. In the not so distant future, in a lot of markets, especially where, you know, the intensity and the radiance can be projected to be high, you'd rather make that a standard product and have a more firmer power product coming out of it. We are seeing also in California, sort of 
CCAs who historically have participated in buying, I would say, solar length through PPAs are now, you know, looking at that same sort of model with the solar plus storage, which gives them a better grasp on the shade and sort of the power that is delivered, especially optimizing for the load they might have on their own systems. So overall, you know, there is sort of good progress on solar plus storage. Um, markets like California being built on the back of both policy and the energy economics and then markets in the East are really being pushed by policy. You know, Massachusetts Smart, uh, New York's Vida all help sort of community scale solar plus storage as well. So there is better price discovery for that product at the end of the day, which sort of helps investors invest into it with a certain sense of risk. And more and more people are getting comfortable with that paradigm. And the policy really is there to sort of support that. And once it gets to a point where it's stabilized from a growth perspective, uh, you can expect market participants to look at it at a, you know, at a very standard basis. Like, you know, everyone would consider solar plus storage to be a very standard product, which was solar only not so long ago. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly things have changed. And there are a lot of great points that you mentioned. If people are not familiar with what uh, Sean was talking about with the duck curve is, you know, California had a lot of solar installed in a very short period of time. And basically how it works with the duck curve is that the peak demand now occurs after sunset when solar power is no longer available. So that's why storage is huge. And California has like the time of use rate, which then incentivized to produce energy during that time. So that that is huge. And that's so key too. like that states are coming up with regulations to incentivize the development and giving some sort of law long-term assurity on cash flows. I think we're going to see more states led by California, Massachusetts, New York that are going to come out with uh, solar plus storage and storage only incentives or regulations. But this actually brings a great point about how software is very important as well. If you could talk about that in storage because of the multiple ways you could use the battery. You know, software you know, has been sort of a very key component in enabling technology, not just enabling hardware, but also enabling end consumer use of technology. So especially from a storage perspective, your battery OEMs and original equipment manufacturers, and then you have this class of integrators who are out there in the market who will optimize that battery to dispatch it in the most sort of economically prudent way, also ensuring that it's operated within sort of the bounds of the warranty and you know the asset life is preserved for what it's intended to and increasingly software is doing that the value streams that they tackle some of them require quick response times and a continuous sort of evaluation of you know when you should be charging when you should be discharging to capture those economic streams so if you think about sort of peak demand management or peak shaving you know software plays a huge role in understanding when you should be ready to be charged to be able to dispatch to reduce the peak demand to ensure that the customer, you know, the value accrues back to the customer. That's what the customer is paying for. And increasingly, and not just increasingly, that a software is the standard way uh, to go about and do it. Like it's impossible to do it on a distributed set of assets at a scale which can be manual. That's really one of the biggest areas where software is really interacting with sort of storage to sort of create more value. And then beyond that, right, like when you, when you think about solar plus storage and think about IT seeability of those assets, you know, there are specific constraints that you need to maintain to make sure that your ITC is not clawed back and you have the ability to take advantage of that incentive. So, 
in a typical solar plus storage project, the minimum amount of charging that you have to do from solar is, is 75% and it can go up to 100%, but you have to be in those bounds to ensure that you're in compliance. And, you know, on a day-to-day basis, that is increasingly better managed with software, as well as then triangulating the whole system in itself. You know, when do you charge? When do you discharge? Based on, you know, when the sun is going to shine, when the load's going to show up. So there are a lot of variables that you start up considering to be most economic and most effective. And that's increasingly being delivered via software. Yeah, that is really interesting, Sean. You were mentioned as well that it seems like investors are getting more comfortable with merchant risks. Is that true? I mean, we're seeing like, obviously, your power purchase agreement was with one party for 20 years. Now we're seeing corporate PPAs that are usually eight to 10 years. You're seeing energy hedges for five years. With community solar, you're seeing one anchor tenant for maybe 10 years, and then investors are comfortable with residential offtake. Can you talk to like what you're seeing in the industry or what your opinion is about like, are you seeing people more comfortable with merchant risk when it comes to projects? Yeah, like when I read about sort of how the landscape's developing since the dawn of grid connected wind and solar, you know, long-term PPAs were the glue that really held projects together. Developers could rely on simple, really multi-decade contracts, largely to part of the policy that encouraged or mandated utilities to enter those agreements. Now, this is sort of the early part of 2010, 2011. And today, things have moved a little bit, right? Like, of course, the power price environment is different. You know, over the last 10 years, uh, prices have just come down on the wholesale marketplace, right? Because of gas prices coming down and that really sets the marginal cost of electricity in more markets. So, you know, while there's still plenty and plenty of long-term PPAs, I think that's been done on the back of the strong momentum and incentives that, you know, end consumers and sort of the comments put in place and sort of also objectively folks want to go in green. But there are more and more projects for the benefit, again, of the end consumer, which are going shorter duration. And really, the new product structure of the shorter duration, in my mind, is to rationalize the risk allocation between the lender and off-taker, really, right? So in the old world, the lender was taking less of a risk and really enjoyed lending to a project which had 20-year cost flows and good credit. While that meant that the off-taker had to, you know, lean in with the strong commitment to buy that energy for 20 years and you know they can be out of the money at times and now especially when you think about more private commercial parties entering into this paradigm corporate ppas etc you know they want to rationalize that risk and rightfully so like what is the other product that you buy for 20 years except for you know your mortgage it's very few things that you lean in for that long and why should electricity be one of those things where you really have to take that long of view. And I definitely think that the shorter and shorter tenors are going to be more commonplace in the market from purely from a risk perspective. Having said that, right, like the flip side of that entire equation is will lenders lend into merchant sole projects and will lenders lend into the ability or a project which might not be contracted and might not be able to sort of generate the cash and have the recovery, especially in a power price environment, which shows that the prices might never rise again to 
to where it was, say, pre-facking? And how do you sort of rationalize some of that risk? And some of it goes back to sort of software and technology as well. So developers continuously are chipping off an O&M cost, making it more efficient, basically trying to give themselves more room in their operating profile. So, you know, if you do end up looking at sort of merchant scenarios, you've set yourself up, at least from a cost perspective, to have some level of control in enabling that. I think that is something which is increasingly going to grow in the market. On top of that, you know, the virtual PPAs are interesting as well because they are turning out to be sort of shorter tenor, especially in the corporate world. These are fixed to floating hedges or swaps, but increasingly, as I read and sort of research and market studies, they've been shorter and shorter in tenor. You know, other products like the proxy revenue swap, which is really a risk transfer product, which sort of hedges both price and generation is also sort of leading or yielding to sort of shorter tenor. And when I say shorter, I think 10 years to 12 years is considered short. Uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that is still considered to be short in this market. No one's looking at like, hey, can we do a five-year <laughs> offtake unless you have some sort of a commitment in the back end to sort of reprice, but stay in the deal. I think that could be rational, but 10 to 12 is still the minimum because there's no effective payback today under 12 years in any market. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Solar Energy Systems SES for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. The company is a solar energy photovoltaic design bill firm headquartered in Brooklyn, New York and serving the Northeast U.S., Founded in 1998, the company designs, builds, and maintains solar photovoltaic PV systems with the public and private domain. I interviewed David Buckner, who's the founder and CEO of SES, on episode 65 of the podcast, and it was one of the 10 most downloaded podcasts. So definitely check it out. The title is 20-Year Solar Veteran and Entrepreneur, provides perspective on the solar market. To learn more about solar energy, check out their website, which is www.solar, then it's esystems.com. Email SES at info at solaresystems.com or call at 718-389-1545. We'll also have in the notes of the podcast information on solar energy systems. Thank you again for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. That's a great point. And what do you think about most of the companies that have been doing the virtual and corporate PPAs have been really big companies that have, you know, great credit. You know, there are a lot of smaller companies that want to buy power virtually and meet their like 100% renewable energy goals. Can you talk to potentially ways in the future or even now that they could get more involved? I've read about like increasing amount of consortiums which are coming in place, which sort of help basically promote the idea of aggregated purchase under one sort of umbrella. You know, if you're a smaller party, you might have a different credit profile in the consortium than someone else. But the aggregate of that can come to some median or mean, which could make the project potential, at least from a lending equity investment perspective. So sort of similar to the idea of community solar project with an anchor tenant taking part of the capacity, but the rest of it is sold to a mix of different mass markets, mass with participants. Could be small commercial, large commercial, some residential, and then you can also go into sort of the LMI space. Definitely the policy in a lot of these states look to sort of, you know, enable more uh, LMI-like development and, and they have adders for that. An analogy on the corporate side would be sort of emulating the same, right? Like you have a big solar farms being built and, you know, you could, you could take physical delivery at a particular grid or you could do a virtual PPA, but the entire offtake does 
does not have to go to a single counterparty versus to sort of a consortium or a special purpose vehicle, which can sort of maintain the attributes of a good off-taker, which really is just credit. Um, yes. <laughs> and sort of school in to bring uh, smaller participants in there. I definitely think this is sort of going to be more commonplace. So sort of corporate-like community solar, which is basically like larger farms or pieces of the capacity sold to different participants. And I would say they would range in quality and characteristics, but the end outcome from an aggregate perspective would still be good enough for equity or a debt or a tax equity investor to sort of lean in and make the project pencil. I mean, we're seeing it with some energy companies that basically do a green tariff where they back basically act as the counterparty's credit. And then, you know, there are many different of their customers who are basically procuring the electricity from that solar project, but the solar projects contracted directly with the energy company. So that's interesting. You know, I wanted to get your perspective on this because you mentioned like the investment tax credit, Sean. Obviously, it's like 26% this year, 22% next year. And then for commercial, industrial and utility, it's 10% and zero for residential. Now, if there's no legislative change, I know you know there's been members of Congress talking about bringing it back to 30%, potentially a cash grant, because with COVID, you know, there's less tax equity out there because companies and high net worth individuals are not making as much taxable income to take advantage of the investment tax credit. Do you see the drop-off really having like an impact to the industry going from 22% to 10% or from 30% last year to 10%? I think in the interim and the short term, yes, there'll be some pressures because folks are just used to it as to how they model it, how they develop it, how they basically, you know, price their product offering or offtake or sort of design PPAs. And, and, you know, traditionally it was on the back of having ITCs to be monetized. And so if you take that construct away, there's going to be some slowdown in the market. But like I said earlier, like if you look back over the last five years, there've been some challenges forced to the solar industry, especially the tariffs were sort of a big thing. And the industry sort of went back and recovered to sort of a steady state pretty quickly after that. You know, by that same analogy, I think like in a world of 10% ITC, I would imagine that you could be better off but just not taking that 10% because it's also a transaction cost, which is not easy. And then you have another party out there, you know, you have to do a whole host of things with tax equity, like forbearance, making sure there's no recapture risk. So now if you take that party off the table, does it make transacting a bit more easier? And can you find that value from somewhere else. One of the points that I mentioned earlier was chipping away at ONA and sort of taking a view on long-term pricing, especially for equipment like inverters, etc. And you can expect those costs to, of course, coming down paired with better optimization, better sort of O&M plans, more resourceful in sort of how you develop the project. And a combination of those should give good developers the value to bridge the gap. I would imagine that could be a construct which is achievable but there could still be a slowdown in the interim market because not everyone is going to take sort of, I would say that really optimistic approach of having the ability to find value elsewhere. The other part, of course, is developer margin, right? Like um, you can always sort of chip away at that and bang, you have a project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. That's a great point. I mean, right now, really like, uh, you know, developers get a premium, obviously, if they develop a good project. So I think you're right. Like everyone in the value chain is going to have to be more creative. You know, there's margin compression, as you mentioned. And O&M, that's a great point, especially when you talk about inverters. You know, you usually do your inverter replacement within 13 years. I'm sure like the cost of that inverter is going to be down. 
Yeah, and I think also like inverters and then the dispatchability of the resource and how much you can control, especially if you do solar plus storage. Like, are you moving to a paradigm where you're just at the mercy of the sun and when the sun shines and when the power gets produced and whatever the price at the trading hub is and you take that, right? Like, that's one paradigm. And the other one is, you know, increasing ability to control that and optimize and create more value for yourself. You know, if you see a peak weather event coming down the road or peak pricing opportunity especially more relevant with solar plus storage but could also be with solar because you know you can look at how it operates to sort of deliver that value so there could be other avenues as well to go down that path and sort of really find that value to make projects work you know even if itc goes away and you're looking at sort of lower returns in the interim i would say like the transaction cost benefit is also huge like not having to do tax equity and of course i know mental health for developers (laughs) that also Yeah, and then also too, obviously having more debt on the project as well, because you know you were limited based on tax equity as far as the capital to stack. But it also obviously depends on how much contracted revenue that you have as well. So yeah, and then of course uh, you know like the ten year and the thirty year rates have have gone down, right? Like so you know you have seen compression where sort of the lending market is. So you know I'm not sure if that can really plug in the gap for tax equity one for one, but. You know, you are seeing a paradigm where the interest rates are basically low, while at the same time, your revenue opportunity, especially in terms of power prices, are not as rosy. But I don't know if they've come down sort of one-to-one as it relates to sort of the interest rate environment. So even if you sort of consider a flat power price environment with a decrease in the interest rate, it could sort of get plugged that gap as it relates to tax equity. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think the other thing too is people are forecasting panel prices to continue to go down within the next two years. And obviously the wattages or capacities are going to continue to increase. So that also plays a part. I was listening to an Anwa investor call a couple of days back and they were looking at sort of wattage at sort of the high 400s now. And of course, panel prices are going to come down like that's modeled in. Everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty crazy to hear how much the costs are going down and the technology is improving. One of the other things that you mentioned, you talked about VEDER, the Value of Distributed Energy Resources, which is basically the way New York compensates distributed energy systems. Do you think that the VEDER concept is the appropriate way of valuing distributed energy systems? Obviously, when states come up with their own paradigm, they look at what's been passed. And what are your thoughts on VEDER? It's interesting, and to be very honest, I've not really worked on an actual project. And a lot of this spiel is only theoretical. But in the old world, right, like what you had for compensation was net metering, and uh, you overproduced, you exported excess energy, and you got paid back the retail rate. And for right or wrong reasons, it, it sort of didn't play well with the utilities in some aspects, and also sort of valued the energy at that time was you know what was being compensated for. So, for example, if you're solar in California, your net metering at the middle of the day, where grid prices are really really low, you're still going to get retail tariff, and probably not in the new construct. But I'm giving some background as to why the New York ref process came to be, I think, in 2017, and folks looked at sort of a separate way to enable that. 
you know, with that construct, I thought like net metering is very blunt as a tool. And then Vida is really basically enabling price discovery within the distribution system. That's what it's doing. So it's giving you an energy value, capacity value, an environmental demand reduction, locational and community credit. So a whole host of sort of stacking items. You know, there is some risk associated with it. Like, you know, in the old sort of net metering regime, you sort of hadn't grandfathered and sort of taken a view as to what your cash flows would look like. And that's really what, again, goes back to our past conversation, sort of merchant solar and what works or not works. You know, folks like it because you know, this cash flow security that is a clear economic premise for the end use customer versus now you're basically passing out between these different value streams on energy and capacity. So I think on Vida, environmental demand and the LSRV can be logged in for some term, right? For 10 years or so. But the capacity value, like the ICAP sort of changes monthly. There is some sort of risk to so your cash flows. So there are components which can be locked in for longer term, but there's really some sort of components, at least on the energy value, the capacity value, which could be a bit more volatile. And I don't know, like, I think you can also look at it from like, hey, solar, are you going to put your big boy pants and really face the market and take what the LFPs are being generated? Now, you know, there is tremendous progress in terms of where the LCOE is and sort of cost of putting those systems on the ground and the cost to operate it. You know, even if you're taking sort of view on energy, energy and capacity, while other things are locked in, it can amount to a reasonable amount of risk that folks can get comfortable with. So that's sort of my high level on reader. But again, it's going to be a testament of how much we see in terms of activity that comes out of the market at the end of the day. So basically it comes down to investors' long-term views on reader values. Yeah, that's so key. I mean, it's interesting just being involved in the New York community solar market. We're seeing investors getting increasingly comfortable with Veter. And then as well, as you mentioned, Sean, like lenders willing to actually lend to the parts of the Veter calculation that's fixed. As you mentioned, environmental value, demand reduction, locational system value, and community credit, it's fixed for a different amount of years. The energy value and capacity value are not necessarily fixed, but we've been seeing a lot of people doing research, like what's kind of the floor price for energy? Energy potentially that it could be, but not people lending it to it, but to get an idea of how to forecast, you know, the theater over time. Are you seeing that lenders are bifurcating what they would want to lend to in terms of cash flows between those fixed attributes and sort of energy and capacity? I haven't seen that closed transaction, but lenders willing to look at it. Like maybe, you know, obviously there's a difference between looking at it and then actually closing on the transaction. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I'd be interested to see how folks think about a floor value in energy and capacity. Because if you're looking at NISO, you have to take a very long-term fundamental view as to where that can land. You're then going into sort of the very principles of fundamental power price environment and modeling. And it can be pretty volatile. Like, you know, you're having this conversation about floor pricing in 2011 in California without sort of the duck curve being really ducky. And today that floor pricing is really at the floor. Um, <laughs> some hours of the day, right? So it's tricky because it's a constant simulation of what kind of assets are going to get added to the system. Where is the cost of gas and commodity going to be? And then I think the real unknown to all of this is, you know, capacity and energy is what is the policy pusher driver, you know, whether it's carbon or some sort of carbon offset, which basically helps or disables it like it can go either way so it's such a tricky thing to you know especially take extremely long-term horizon on but what it does well is please gives you some value for the components that are fixed and i think like when you think about sort of the demand reduction value or the locational system relief value those are tangible items like the utility can sort of at least have a horizon on at least the 10-year horizon that they're saying and therefore it will sort of lock it in 
That is key. And it's interesting, you mentioned about these long-term horizons that you're pricing these projects out through, you know, the energy uptake. And you mentioned about inflation factors and how, you know, obviously natural gas has been abundant and has kept power prices low. A lot of people don't want, a lot of companies don't want to sign a long-term PPA or be fixed to some sort of escalator because they're worried, and this has happened, where they're paying more for their renewable power than they would through conventional energy. So it's pretty interesting what you're mentioning. Can you talk about like what you see maybe, what's the electricity grid in the U.S. going to be 20 years from now? Like we know that it's going to be a multitude of different types of energy resources. It's not just going to be one sort of energy source. Can you talk to Sean, your opinion on that? Yeah. If you just give me one second, uh, let me find my crystal ball. It's just, (laughs) it's, uh, it's, you know, I can talk about sort of broad themes, right? It's nothing special. I think it's very apparent to anyone who's taking a view in the market. You're going to see increased amount of penetration of solar and wind, you know, from the levels where they're today to sort of double digits to say to a point where it's greater than 50 60%, more thermal capacity, more better shape and predictability. That's really going to get to a point where you have the ability to sort of replace, you know, base load assets with its of, you know, the combination of wind, solar, and storage. That, along with nuclear, which is a big question as to where they stand, you know, plants are distressed across the country and new build is expensive. But my personal opinion is nuclear is an absolute key for us to sort of, you know, manage the 2C crisis or ensure that we don't go over one and a half because, you know, these are extremely clean sources of energy generating at a gigawatt scale. If you take sort of a four gigawatt reactor and take it offline because it can't participate in the market, the amount of solar that you have to build is sort of multiple times that, right? So you would be pushed back on your sort of clean energy goals. So assuming that, you know, I think nuclear has a place and rightfully so, it should be incentivized via policy, via the mechanisms to, to be there. Nuclear plus solar wind storage is going to get you to a large part of grid parity from a clean energy perspective. Now, this, of course, holds true in the Western European and the U.S. marketplace. Like worldwide, it could look a bit different. Like, you know, countries like India and China, while they're still building a lot of solar, they still look at coal and gas as alternatives. It's really based on a cost premise. So going back, I think wind, nuclear, hydro will have sort of a a good mix of what's there. And then I think we'll end up in a spot where we are trying to answer the question about the last mile, like what gets you there. And I think a lot of people are working very hard to figure that out. Like, for example, if you figure out you know, long duration storage, then you can say like, look, we can basically overbuild renewables or anything else like clean sources of generation and long duration storage then basically replaces peaking units in sort of the country. So there's a company called Form Energy. They had a great paper looking at replacement or using long duration storage to replace peaking units in Long Island. There's a bunch of peakers in New York, gas or oil. And uh, these units run a run greater than your traditional two, four, say eight hour lithium ion dispatch. No, eight hours is a stretch on the lithium ion side. But long duration storage, you're looking at, you know, anywhere between 10 to 100 hours. So if you can deliver that at a cost in say 20 years, which is at an LCOE parity with gas, you know, that could be your sort of last mile plug where it sort of gets there. I think we talk a lot about sort of generation for us to get there, but there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in energy efficiency and demand management. And really the optimization of that to also to get there. So what's interesting, like 
like, you know, since for the last 10 to 15 years, we've had a tremendous amount of load, say, by sort of data centers and all, right? Like 15 years ago, there weren't as many data centers in the there today, but load in the true sense hasn't sort of risen because, you know, we've also done well with energy efficiency, replacing sort of inefficient electric or gas infrastructure with more efficient infrastructure. Incandescent light bulbs is a classic example, mm-hmm. sort of taking that to where you have them today. So those sort of low-hanging fruits on the demand side and optimization of that will also add to it. So you might get into a paradigm where you know there's this more and more electric vehicles being added and you expect sort of road growth, but at the same time, better demand side management also gets you there and goes back to sort of where software plays a role. And that's another critical area where, especially on the grid edge, being able to intelligently optimize demand for generation coincident sort of weather conditions to get to a point where you really don't have to alter your operational or day-to-day sort of characteristics of using energy very widely, but you still get to that same outcome of resiliency and reliability by doing this. So it's a combination. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did. I mean, that's interesting hearing nuclear. You know, you don't always hear it. I agree that it's a huge producer of clean energy and definitely that's interesting, your perspective on that. I know people have concerns, obviously, after Fukushima, the potentially of recycling nuclear waste and the technology and that has done better over time. What do you think of like the Massachusetts Clean Peak standard? It's an interesting one. I think if you look at the core, Clean Peak was really formulated to say, incentivize better clean energy technologies to supply power and when electricity demand is at its peak. So during high demand in summer and winter, and there are times when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing and sort of we sort of the demand eclipses, if you will, uh, clean energy availability. And solving this is, you know, PV and regeneration, mining it storage and then sort of harvesting sort of any local sources to sort of deliver clean power efficiently at the right time. And what the Clean Peak standard requires is electric load serving entities or retailers to produce a minimum of their annual sales from clean generation technologies. I think it's one and a half percent in 2020 and it goes to sort of 16 percent in 2030. And really the idea behind this is load serving entities will be required to buy Clean Peak energy certificates or C effects which are generated during peak periods but by qualified resources and that is basically incentivized and allowing sort of new technologies to cost rebuild especially storage so it can also serve to clean up and reduce infrastructure costs by allowing peak demand to be served more completely by local sources instead of say relying on GHG emitting resources under expensive master run contract or the like so it's in the early stage right like it got sort of really put into effect and force sort of earlier this year. I think the part of the commitments or the requirements is to be delivered starting this year. And really the idea behind it is to incentivize generation or sort of power conditioning or storage to sort of enable that. They do increase the alternative compliance payments. I think it goes from 30 bucks to $45. So that is really the effective increase in what they're trying to provide to a new asset to cost be built. So it's an interesting policy play, you know, to be seen sort of how it really spurs growth. But I think tackling peak energy needs is interesting and an important 
important fact. You know, in Massachusetts, or I was reading about this like from the, the DOE in Massachusetts, like the top 10% peak hours of demand account for nearly 40% of the cost of electricity. Wow. So think about that, right? Like your top 10% of peak hours is really effectively, really high price. So if you can sort of enable new assets to be built, which capture that price, especially on a more sustainable basis, it can be sort of a great outcome. That's huge. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. And this is the last question. This is like interesting because a lot of states are moving to fixed incentives, tradable incentives, especially like in Massachusetts with the solar renewable energy credit. Now we're talking about the Clean Peak Standard and Smart Program, which is more like more of a feed-in tariff. Can you talk to like the benefits of the different incentive schemes and what do you see like going forward is going to be more popular, a fixed versus a tradable incentive? Yeah, you know, you are the subject matter expert on sort of tradable incentives, given how much work you've done in the asterisk space. But yeah, I think it's a broader policy and an economic question, right? Like fixed incentives, you know, take, for example, like the T-REC, you know, if you're getting paid 150 bucks megawatt hour for 15 years, it works well for everyone, right? It works well for the developer, it works well for sort of the lender financier, everyone gets very comfortable quickly, and you have a market. But I would imagine that's an expensive play. Not everyone can afford it because, you know, someone has to pay the $150 a megawatt hour or charge it back somewhere, right? Like it's either your rate base or your tax base or the subsidy. What I won't sort of, you know, pretend to sort of understand is the broader macroeconomic play of what it does. I would imagine that fixed incentive is better for sort of incentivizing growth of solar or sort of these assets uh, because, you know, it sort of plays into the traditional model, lock fixed in, high credit worthy cash flows. And boom, you have a project, but it can be an expensive value proposition for other stakeholders because, you know, it's a zero-sum game. Someone has to again, go back and pay for it. And then on the tradable incentive side, over the last 10 years, we've seen some level of volatility in that marketplace, especially when you look at, you know, SREC market in New Jersey and Maryland, right? Like there's been some level of signaling, which increased value and then decreased value. And then of course, when the signaling was, you know, oversupply, and when you did have a situation of oversupply, those value streams just really, you know, started trading downwards. And you were at a point that folks did not want to sort of price and value SREC. You know, from a developer, investor pricing standpoint, everyone's just exchanging curves and saying, like, this is what it should be. But very few people are actually standing behind and hedging it for a term of a solar project. So you take a two-year market view and do it. But, you know, not a 10-year asterisk deal in Maryland at the price, which is not that good, you know, where sort of future prices are expected to be higher. I think sort of the tradable market, what it does is it tries to balance our demand and supply and gives a signaling. I think there's a lag and what it does to the developer. If there's a signaling of oversupply and prices, you know, at least the outlook starts trading low, you immediately get to a point where development can stall or, or slow down for some reason and might sort of lose market momentum. But it could be a more equitable play because, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to sort of match it versus in the fixed sort of incentives where the market momentum is kept in place. Who would not want to do a $150 direct deal today? But it could be expensive. What do you think? Yeah, there are a lot of different things that I think. I mean, there are a lot of great points. You mentioned about the rate payer. They're the ones who are paying usually in their societal benefit charge, at least in New Jersey. I think you're right. There's a lag between the actual oversupply and how the market basically reacts to it. 
Then the challenge is a tradable commodity is having a long-term price for it because really the generators are doing supply contracts for two to three years and they don't want to, you know, they don't know what their compliance obligation is going to be past that. In theory, it actually, you know, adjusts and works. There's just huge lags and it impacts like the development cycle. So like I have mixed views about it. We're like obviously a T-Rec program at a flat price of 152. You know, that's very easy from a development perspective, but you don't have the same risk based on the supply that comes online that you do with an SREP because it's based on more market measures, right? And then basically a declining incentive and it's imperfect, you know, in that sense. So it's hard for me to say which one's better, especially because I do a lot of work in the tradable <laughs> markets, you know, but it seems like the trend is that at least on Rex, that it's, or SREX, it seems like it's moving more to a fixed incentive. So we'll see what happens. So this has been an amazing podcast interview. I appreciate your time, Sean. Like if anyone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely. And thank you, Binoy, for having me. LinkedIn would be a really good way to sort of reach me and good platform to sort of connect with folks. Great. Thank you, Sean. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.